Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. Well, good morning. My name's Mark. If we haven't met, well, happy Mother's Day uh, to all the mothers in the room, but also spiritual mothers. We are see at the beginning of the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are commanded to go forth and multiply, and that is to invest in the world. One of the ways that happens is through being a mother, but also investing forward spiritually as a spiritual mother. So thank you to all who play that role of mothering uh, in our community. And also, uh, uh, we had a chance in between uh, services to thank someone who's been a spiritual mother in our community, Alex, who uh, is moving on to a new season in her life. And we had a morning tea. I won't get you up here on stage, Alex, and it's your favorite thing in the world. Uh, but if you would like to say thanks to Alex for her contribution at Red, that would be wonderful afterwards. Well, this is an auspicious occasion, I realized. Uh, I have been in ministry for over 20 years and this is the first time that I have preached with a coffee. Uh, I didn't know life could get this good. Uh, normally like I have a coffee in between but it's a bit late today so who knows what could happen. Anything could happen. We'll be energized at least. We are in a series or it's like an in-between series really. We built up to Easter went through that whole period, celebrated Jesus' resurrection. And what we're looking forward to really is next is Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit poured out uh, on the church and the people of God. And interestingly, if you, from a church background where perhaps you follow the church calendar, uh, you know what this time is called ordinary time. Ordinary time doesn't sound that exciting, but actually I thought about it and I thought ordinary time's actually a really nice title because often it's actually God does extraordinary spiritual things, often in the most ordinary of times. And I wanted to talk about that, that we have been in a series, a, a, a time when what we've been doing is looking at these great statements of faith where people say, here I am. We looked at Isaiah when he had this incredible vision of God and he responded, here I am. We looked at the story of Samuel when God's voice had not been heard for a long time. And Samuel hears this, this voice and responds, here I am. And what I want to do today is I want to look at another here I am from Scripture from Moses, one of the great leaders of the people of God in Scripture. But I want to talk to you about this in a particular way that I think it speaks into something really key that's happening in this season in the church. Now, before we jump into Moses, I just actually want to begin with that statement, here I am. Upon closer inspection, here I am is actually one of the great cries of the human heart. And if you look at what motivates our behavior, why we do what we do, often I believe that behind it is the impulse to declare, here I am. Now, this can take two forms. It can take an active form where we declare, here I am, through our achievements, our virtues, our sense of style, our charisma, our forcefulness, our relevance, our status. Or 
It can manifest almost in a passive form. A wish that people would notice us. A fear that maybe we don't matter to others, that maybe we're unloved. And in this form, we pine, we yearn, we lament that others would see, hang on, here I am. Does anyone see me? So these actions, these cry of here I am speaks of a deeper yearning. And I think there's two key ways that this manifests. Firstly, people want others to hear the here I am because we yearn for significance. Much of the energy of our lives is spent pursuing what some call the search for significance. One could say this is one of the great cries of our hearts, to live a life in which what we do really matters. We want to achieve things that matter. We want to work on things which matter. We want to be around things that really matter. We want to live a life that really matters because we want to believe that we really matter. The second reason behind our here I am is I think people yearn for recognition. We want significance, but we also want recognition. Our wishes to be noticed, to declare to others, here I am, reveals the relational nature of us as humans. The statement, here I am, if you think about it, doesn't work if you're in an empty room. If you're in an expanse of nature where no one is there. Here I am is a cry for recognition, and recognition is always relational. Our fear is to cry out and be ignored. We want recognition to be known, loved, and noticed. And this has to happen as part of a conversation. Here I am is the attempt to start a conversation. It's call and response. That shows that we as humans live in a social dynamic. So we have this desire, here I am, behind it, a search for significance and a yearning for recognition. Yet our here I am can easily be lost, replaced in the crowd by our here we are. Our desires for others to hear our cry of here I am, our yearning to be significant, to be recognized can result in the very opposite thing happening, which then ends up in actually a resulting loss of significance, an outcome of not being recognized. Well, how does this happen? Well, firstly, it happens through a dynamic called enmeshment. Enmeshment. Very often, someone wishing that someone would hear their cry of, here I am, will find someone who will affirm that cry, that desire for recognition. This may be a professional relationship. It may be a friendship. It may even be a romantic relationship. Now, you find someone who hears your call of here I am, and often what's going on is that person is also seeking someone to hear their here I am. And so this creates a kind of alliance of recognition in which two people enter into this alliance so that the other one will hear their here I am, recognize them, and bring significance. However, very quickly, the alliance can evolve or devolve, rather, 
into an emotional enmeshment in which the other person is required to operate as a kind of feedback loop of constant affirmation to our cry of here I am. The other person is reduced to being a sounding board to our cry of here I am. Or perhaps the per- other person, they're doing it to each other. It's like table tennis. Here I am, here I am, here I am. This immersion soon turns the here I am into the here we are. As individuality is lost, the boundaries of where you begin and they end disappear. An enmeshment happens. The original yearning for recognition and significance can't be fed in this constricting arrangement. Oh, I didn't realize that would happen with coffee. (laughs) Maybe this is why I've never done it. (laughs) Enmeshment then can quickly become triangulation. However, when such arrangements fall apart or when one's desire to be recognized is not met, a third party can be sought. And this is really alluring. You're there and someone comes up to you who you know is deeply connected to someone else or perhaps is good friends with the boss or perhaps seems to have a marriage or a friendship that seems wonderful on the surface. And then they say to you, can I share something? Something that I haven't shared with anyone. You know, so-and-so, everyone thinks they're their great boss. Maybe they're not. Can I tell you something about my marriage, my friendship, that group of friends? And it's this weird territory because you're like, I know we shouldn't be talking about this, but there's part of you are drawn in because it's like, wow, this person is recognizing something in me giving me significance, recognizing me because they're sharing something intimate that not many people know. There's nothing as attractive as, can I tell you something that I haven't told anyone? At this point, the third party then becomes enmeshed in this dynamic. Enmeshment turns into triangulation. At first it's just this, and then a third element is joined. It's more like a diamond, there you go. And in our world, which values good feelings above almost anything else, which promises social peace above its actual capacity to deliver social peace, and which is digitally connected unlike ever before, enmeshment and triangulation doesn't just happen relationally like it's happened throughout human history, but it's now happening at an immense scale. We know more about celebrities than we ever need to know. We know more about what people are feeling than we've actually built as humans to know. You can switch the news on to find out what's happening just that day in the world. And before you know it, you're reading some weird story about someone on some strange reality TV show. And this is just TMI, too much information. You see the person who perhaps was at your party and the Instagram picture they put up and what they really thought or hinted something. And we're constantly like our emotional insides are now on the outside. When this happens, we move from a here I am to a here we are. But the we seems to go on forever. And we become immersed and enmeshed in a kind of emotional, digital, social mass in which boundaries and individuality disappears. 
There's no rules because the lines have disappeared. One example out of, I could give of millions at Anzac Day, probably one of the most sacred days in the Australian culture. There's a really interesting article where people were saying, should you bring your kids to Anzac Day and then let them run everywhere during the silence? And people saying, no, this is a line that's being crossed. And other people saying, well, you can't say that. You're not a parent. And it's just a big Barney as everyone's fighting over. This happens everywhere. Conversation about political correctness. What's right and wrong now? What can you say? What can't you say? What's appropriate in a romantic relationship? What's appropriate at work? Why are we having all these conversations? Because all the lines have actually been rubbed out. We are surrounded by others, constantly connected to the crowd, yet weirdly alone. I'm most definitely exhausted by all of this. You can't be significant in a crowd. You can't be recognized as part of the mass. In this dynamic, we burden others. We overload our relationships, our friends, our marriages, our workplace, even our churches explicitly or implicitly expecting that they can truly respond to our deep yearning cry of here I am and that they can answer for our desires to be significant and truly recognized. What to do? How do we get out of this mess? It's definitely not toning down. It's getting bigger and more immersive. Well, a fantastic place to turn is scripture. And that's where we're going to turn to the book of Exodus. Well, I make sure I don't put my microphone in my coffee. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, to set this up, the book of Exodus has begun and we encounter this character, Moses. Moses is part of the people of God who at this time find themselves enslaved in Egypt. They are taken away from where they're meant to be. They are living as a minority in really what is one of the superpowers of the day at this time, Egypt. Incredible, powerful culture, powerful military nation. And it's terrible. It's oppressive for the Hebrew people. Moses is a Hebrew, but his life story is different to the others. He actually, through a whole set of circumstances, which I won't go into now, finds himself being raised in the Egyptian elite. And so he's a Hebrew, but he has status. And one day he sees his fellow Hebrews being oppressed by an Egyptian. And in anger and frustration at the injustice, he kills the Egyptian. And then he has to go on the run. He's hiding out and he has to leave behind his people, everything he knows. And he finds himself out in the middle of the wilderness. He marries someone there and he begins to work for her father-in-law. Jethro, who will mention in this first verse. So that's where we pick it up. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. This is the far side of the wilderness. That's like the wilderness that's in the wilderness. This is away from anywhere. And came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, I've shared this before. In scripture, you've got to look out for these little code words. They're like hyperlinks that point to something else. Mountain of God is something you always need to listen to. A mountain was this high place. It was like a temple. And often mountains of gods operate as temples in nature. So once you hear that term, 
Often it's a prequel to God or a preview that God's going to turn up in a moment, which is what happens. In verse 2, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over there and see this strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he'd gone over, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he's afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land overflowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign that it is I who has sent you when you brought the people out of Egypt and worship on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they'll ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I then tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, this passage reveals some key insights into the problem that was set up. Our yearning to be recognized is ultimately, at its core, a desire to be recognized by God. In the wilderness, Moses encounters what theologians call a theophany. That's an appearance of God. This mysterious appearance of God, the angel of the Lord in a burning bush. His response is to check out this strange sight and a voice emerges from the fire and cries, Moses, Moses, to which Moses replies, here I am. Now this here I am is different. It occurs in response to God. This is not looking for a sense of recognition from other humans, but it comes in response to God seeking relationship with humans. So the bush is strange, not just because it's on fire, but because from it comes a voice of hope, which is starting a new conversation. This here I am is the restarting of a conversation. For in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God called out to them, where are you? And instead of replying, well, here we are, here I am. They hid and they were afraid and they were ashamed. Why? Because of their sin and unholiness had created a divide between them and God. But now as part of his great plan of salvation, which will lead to Christ giving his life upon the cross for humanity so that we can approach God in boldness. 
A new plan was being established. The conversation was beginning. Now, I just want to say at this point, what this says is that as we've been working through this, if you've recognised part of you saying, that's my cry, here I am. Maybe you've recognised how you're trying to carve out a life of significance. Maybe others is that sense of recognition. What this passage is saying to us is God sees you. God hears your cry of here I am. In fact, he's been crying out to you, crying out to you for your whole life. Maybe you just haven't heard him. Second key insight is to find significance. We must first recognize the significance of God. Moses is alone in a wilderness. He's isolated. He once lived amongst Egyptian royalty. A life of potential incredible significance was before him. He had so much. But now the palace has been swapped out for the placelessness. He's, in his own words, a foreigner in a foreign land. His identity is hidden and his life is seemingly insignificant. He's simply a shepherd in the wilderness trying to forget the past. And then comes this voice, the voice of God beckoning Moses to come closer. But to come closer, he must take off his shoes. Why? To take off your shoes is an act of humbling oneself. Holiness is linked to humbling. To be in God's presence is to be humbled. Humility is to seek to recognize before being recognized. At this point, Moses steps forward. He steps forward and recognizes God. By choosing the path of holiness, Moses humbles himself before receiving revelation. Too often in our culture, built on individualism, built on a gender of me, we want revelation, we want the voice of God, but we're not prepared to humble ourselves. And what this story tells us is Moses, having humbled himself, receives an incredible revelation. What's that revelation? The very name of God. For Moses is here I am, is answered with the I am who I am. The voice of God first reveals himself to be the God of, of Moses' father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God reveals himself to Moses. And having been given this mission to go back and free his people, Moses asks, who shall I tell is sending me? And this is an interesting indicator because Moses is here, is anxious. He's worried about what the crowd, what these relationships which he's extricated himself from, what they will say, how they define him when he goes back into that group of people. And so God tells him something fascinating. God tells him to say that who sent him, it's not a clear name as we understand, like a mark or whatever. It's actually tell them, I am who I am has sent you. And this is God revealing his name. This is an incredible thing. I am Yahweh, the name so holy that often in scripture to Adonai, Jews to this day will not write the name. They'll write a G and a dash. This is a name that's so special and intimate. It's given to Moses in this moment of isolation in the middle of nowhere. 
And this revealing of his name tells us two really key things. Firstly, God is setting out that he's not defined by others. God is not defined by the crowd. God is not defined by humans, by the public, by the zeitgeist of the day. He is God. Secondly, it tells us that we can only discover who we are when we recognize who God is. We can only get the recognition we crave, the cry of our hearts, here I am, can only be answered by the I am. Before we find significance, we must first recognize God's significance. The third thing, the third key insight that this passage shows us is that significance is set apartness. I'm going to say that again. Significance is set apartness. Moses is asked to take off his shoes. This signals something holy. Remember I said a mountain of God speaks of a temple. There's a temple happening here. It's not with columns and like a building. It's nature. It's God's world. It's his temple. And in this, just in the, the shadow of this high place, Moses is being stepping into the role, the son of a priest, father-in-law is a priest. Moses is now stepping into this priestly role. Priests would take off their shoes in the temple in Jerusalem as a sign that they'd crossed into a sacred boundary into God's presence. So a line is being drawn here, and this is so important. A line speaks of set-apartness, and a line speaks of differentiation, being made different. This is the essence of holiness, a world often used, rarely understood, sometimes bemoaned as some kind of like, yeah, bit of a wowzer, bit too holy moly. We lose the biblical understanding of what holiness is. Holiness is to be set apart. To holiness is actually establishing sacred, holy lines of differentiation to know where we begin and where we end. This helps us recognize that we are not God. Moses' encounter with God establishes a clear differentiation through the use of names, through the taking off shoes between God and humanity. Humanity with the here I am, but God with the I am. For the tendency of humans is to worship idols and idolatry blurs this line. It dangerously erases the boundary between an idol and the idol worshippers' will and desire. And this is so key because in our desire to state, here I am, we can set up answers in our own creation that will answer the call of our heart. But they turn relationships into idols. They'll turn identity into idol. They'll turn our achievements into an idol. They will turn things, even which are good, into idols because we're trying to answer a question with them that only God can answer. Holiness reestablishes the right lines between worship of creator and the creation. And so Moses had to discover the differentiation between him and God so he could discover the differentiation between him and others. His life would be spent from this point on walking a path of holiness in the front of a people and a crowd who wished to envelop him in their enmeshments, triangulations, to reshape and mold him to their will. And so his mission was dependent upon not being subsumed into the here we are of the crowd. This is so important for us today. 
We live in a world where I think the lines have been so blurred that many of us really don't know where we belong and where others end, where we are so connected to the emotions of others and you're just not going to ever find yourself in an environment where everyone is emotionally healthy and happy. We think it's going to arrive, but it's just as futile as all the utopias that humanity has set up. We need to learn what it is to be holy. In all the moving of lines of like, if I can be a Christian in the world and maybe I can move that line here and play with that line over there, this has just ended up with a church which has lost its holiness. And so a pattern follows. The here I am is met with the I am, but then it turns into the I am sending you. For significance comes through being set apart And why are we set apart? We're set apart to serve. Now Moses, in the wilderness, far from home, found himself isolated. In the wilderness, away from his people. Lonely, unsure of what his place was, unsure of his identity. Maybe this is how you feel. Many, many feel like this after the pandemic. Many are trying to get back into the rhythm. The 2019 world is sort of back, but then it's not. Many in the church, I traveled this week for the first time in two and a half years, got on a plane, went to Adelaide, did some ministry there, went to Sydney, met with some people. And the story everywhere all different denominations, different churches. A lot of people are experiencing friends who did not come back in this time. Maybe it's the friend who you so half knew up the back of the church. For others, it's brothers, sisters, relatives, great mates, who weirdly in this moment have begun to walk away. And that creates almost a little bit of an existential crisis for one's faith. The interesting story I'm hearing from so many people who are pastors and leading churches and what's happening at the moment is there's a lot of people coming back at this moment in Australia and they're coming back realizing they're not everyone's coming back with them. Now, I think Moses' story reframes this moment for us. We see how God uses Moses' isolation as the first step in a healing process of differentiation. To as Hosea writes in chapter 2, verse 14, where Hosea is speaking the words of God, where God says he wants to take you into the wilderness and speak tenderly to you. The isolation becomes part of the healing process with God. Moses was first differentiated by God, set apart to serve, and God actually may be doing this in your life. And in a messy time like ours where everything overlaps, there's no rules. No one knows where anything lies. We've got competing visions of morality where people are afraid of stepping on landmines or being left behind. There is enmeshment. There's few clear lines. The crowd, the public of our day, wants to enmesh us, the people of God, in its extensive emotional triangulation. And that even happens in the church. 
And the pressure of the crowd of the public presses against the church at a moment like this, wishing us to turn into its image, to reshape our morals, our morals, our lifestyle, our theology in its image. And we can feel at this moment it's scorn when we resist and set ourselves, no, actually, on God's standards on Scripture. And I believe in such an environment, less now is the church's mission to fight for relevance, to catch the crowd's attention, to say, in a secular age, church is still relevant. Here we are. Rather, I think our relevance will come from our differentiation to be a healing presence because we've actually stepped into holiness, because we've actually distanced ourselves from the idols of the culture. We've created appropriate boundaries, but we're still relationally present. God takes Moses on this process of differentiation, of isolation, where actually clear lines are set. Why? Because he's still sending him back to be relationally present. The story doesn't go with Moses heading off into the desert to create a little cell where he's just going to hang out by himself and spend time with God and never deal with those horrible humans again. No, God sends him back amongst the people. Differentiation, holiness, this set-apartness is not so that you will then be socially absent. It's so we can be socially present but not entangled in all the spiritual ties of our age, be set by the morals and agenda of our age, not be stuck in this enmeshment and triangulation. Why? So we can be a healing presence because God has healed us. I believe. I'm seeing it everywhere. There's those stories of people walking away. But I keep hearing this story. I heard it in person as I traveled around Australia this week. I get it in messages of just complete strangers who send me messages on Instagram. I get it in emails. I've chatted to people on Zoom. There is people at the moment who have gone, I came back and not everyone came back. But I'm back. And maybe a lot of these people's friends aren't back and not coming back, but they're saying, I'm back because God is doing something in me. He's doing something in us. In the wake of the pandemic and all the disruption, God is building a remnant church. What's a remnant church? A remnant church is a wholly differentiated and set apart for God. It's called to be in the world, but not of it. And at this time, God is shaping, forming, set-apart disciples. It's not a wild guess that this is happening to many here. I know this is happening to many here. So at this moment, the great I am has heard your cry of here I am. He is the only one who can truly speak to that yearning we have in our hearts. And the great I am, he is your cries. He answers your cries. He invites you through a gift of grace into his presence. We take off our shoes because with this I am, even the most wilderness place can be a temple where his presence is. And wherever you're called to go into the difficult, enmeshed, emotionally boundaryless environments, workplace, friendships, family, maybe Mother's Day lunch today, be assured what he said to Moses, I am with you. 
the great I am is sending us at this moment. I actually think it's like one of those moments where, yes, the church has come back. Maybe it's come back smaller, but I think it's come back stronger. It's how God does these great judo moves in history. So let's be a wholly differentiated church filled with wholly differentiated disciples. That's what God is calling us to. There's great things which through history we often forgot in the church. There's invitations to prayer. There's invitations to read scripture, to go deeper. My excitement is there's actually a whole new generation. And my generation, I mean people of any age, that's the biblical definition of a generation who are alive in the world at a time, who are actually rediscovering and being drawn into something that God is doing at this time. What an incredibly disrupted time we've lived through but what an incredibly exciting time we live on the verge of at this moment. I can't wait to see the stories that we're going to tell in 10 years. I can't wait to see what God's going to do in our city, in our nation, in our church and beyond. Let's stand. God, we thank you for your gift of grace. We thank you that our call does not go out into a void. Each of us cries as a human being, here I am. But before we even cried that, you were calling our name. And just as you called Moses' name, you've been calling every person's name in this room, whispering to them, alluring them back into your love. And we just want to begin by confessing when we've not listen to that voice. When instead we've searched after significance and recognition, our own strength in all the wrong places, maybe in turning good places into bad places by overloading relationships, workplaces, the things of this world, expecting them to answer only what you can answer. So we confess that. And we instead want to turn our focus to you to take off our shoes and recognize we're in holy ground that we worship the great I am. You are not defined by us. You are. You've always been. And you give us life. You created this world. And we just want to ask your forgiveness for when we've worked, worshipped the creation. Instead, we now worship you, creator God. And Father, I just want to pray in this time for anyone who's recognised or will recognise the moments where they've been living a life where it's just been enmeshed, triangulated. We all do it in our own ways, whether it's with individuals, social dynamics, even just the culture where we're trying to please everyone. God, we only want to please you. Set out lines of holiness. Set out clear boundaries. Father, we just want to ask your forgiveness of the people we've overloaded with expectations they cannot meet. We want to ask forgiveness when we've overloaded friendship circles, marriages, workplaces, schools, even churches, expecting them to give us something that only you can give. And God, at this moment, we know it's a weird sorting going on. There's people who didn't come back to church. There's people who came back to church who hadn't been in a long time. There's people who have come for the first time. You are gathering a remnant people together at this moment. And we pray, Father, that we can be a holy, set-apart people of God. Here not to go off and have some you know, Christian retreat in the hills, never to interact with the world, but you've actually called us to be present to go back into the crowd, but go back in the crowd, holy and differentiated, identity, our authority set by you. 
So Holy Spirit, you know every individual in this room, you know their experiences, their backgrounds, you know their hearts in ways we can't see. So we just pray, come Holy Spirit now. Come and minister to our heart, every heart in the way that it needs to be ministered to. We pray this may begin now as we worship in your name. 